If you guys have your Bibles, why don't you guys open them up to, to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. You know, there's, if we're all being, I don't know if we're all, if we were all honest, you can tell by looking at me that I like sweet food. I like sweets. I like desserts. Specifically, I like pies. Right? I, I mean, I like, I, like, I like a good, warm cherry pie with a scoop of vanilla ice cream on it. That's good stuff, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, that's my love language, okay? Courtney, I mean, that, I like sweet food. Given the choice between hot, warm cherry pie with a scoop of vanilla ice cream or Brussels sprouts, I'm going to take the cherry pie every time. Now, if all I ate was cherry pie, the stage probably wouldn't be able to support me. And we'd probably need to extend the width of those doors, right? We, we, have, to, we have to balance our diet out, right? We have, to, we have to, from time to time at least, tease ourselves with some vegetables, right? Some healthy food. And you know what? The, the scripture in, in some regards can be the same way. There's, there's, there's passages, there's books, there's themes, there's verses that are like that warm cherry pie, right? I mean, we know them. We feel comfortable in them. It's, it's easy. And then there's those passages that are more challenging. You, you got to kind of sit back and you got to read it and think through it and, and, and try and dig through it. And that's kind of where we're at this morning with, with Daniel chapter 11. And so, so here's what we're going to do. We're hopefully, if you didn't, we might have a few extra. We have our little bulletin deal. On the back to try and help with some of this, I typed up a few little points of note there. Raise your hand. How many of you guys here, do we have any history buffs, like people who really like history? <laughs> okay, one person. Mills, that's why I like you. Thank you. One, me and Mills may enjoy this. The rest of you will not. No, just kidding. But, but what, what, we ha- what happens today, what, this morning is, is if you recall those who were here last week, Daniel, in, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel, it begins telling us that Daniel was fasting. He had been going through this 21-day fast. He had been praying. He had traveled 50 miles away from home. And, and he's, he's praying, he's seeking God. And in the midst of this, after 21 days, an angel arrives and begins having this conversation with Daniel. And in the midst of this, he's going to, to give Daniel this, um, this vision, this vision that, that kind of chapter 10 leads into. We'll take over chapter 11 and chapter 12. Um, this morning, we're going to look at 20 verses in chapter 11, and then next week, we'll look at the rest of it. But here's what's interesting. So as Daniel receives what we're going to talk about today, this is all prophecy to him. Okay, this is all stuff that's going to happen in the future. But for us today, we can look back and see that it's all occurred. The, the reality is from, from Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 1 through verse 35, commentators and scholars will tell you there are 135 prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Now, we don't have the time and I don't have the skill to go over all 135 of those prophecies. But for a great portion of this, this morning, it's a history lesson for us today. Um, and so what my, my hope is, is we're going to go, we're going to try and go through this. And, and our normal method of teaching is that we go verse by verse, 
chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. And so we want to continue that theme. And in prophecy, as I've, I've said for the last several weeks, prophecy can be one of those things that some in here love and some in here loathe. Right? Some, some people just, as soon as you talk about it, they get nervous, they get freaked out, they don't want to hear it. For others, they're like, give it to me. I want to hear all this stuff. And sometimes what happens is we talk about prophecy, we talk about all this stuff out here, all this stuff to come, but we need to also grab stuff for the here and the now, for the day. How can this be applicable? What can I take from today's lesson to help my life today and tomorrow? And so what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and go through the history lesson somewhat quickly, and then we're going to go back and try and pull out three points to help us with the here and the now, all right? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig right into it. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for just all your blessings. I thank you that we can come this morning, one with the freedom to worship you. Thankful that Jacob was in town and he came to help us lead worship. And thankful that we had baby dedication where we could dedicate Presley. Lord, I'm thankful for everyone that's here today and those who couldn't. Lord, I'm most thankful for you, for your love, for your grace, a grace that allows us as sinners to come before you and seek forgiveness. A grace that when we seek that forgiveness, that you accept us and adopt us into your family. What a beautiful picture. Lord, this morning, I pray that as, as we look into this portion of Scripture, for me, some of the most difficult portion, this and the next two weeks, God. God, I pray that you just help us. Help us, help us to find what we need. Lord, I pray that you speak to us, that you begin to soften our hearts and open our eyes and, and help us and help us to find at least one thing this morning that we can take. We have a mission statement in our church that we exist to see souls saved and lives changed. And, and Lord, I pray that you use your word today to reach a soul that may not be saved and then to change the lives of those who are. So God, we love you and we thank you and we ask for a great work. And God, I pray that you help us to be faithful to your word. In your sense, beautiful and precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Okay. You guys ready? Here we go. Daniel chapter 11. We look at these first two verses. This is kind of the prophecy uh, of the Persian kings. And the reality is that first verse that we're about to read, Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, really is a carryover to the previous chapter. And so Daniel chapter 11, I'm going to just read the first two verses. And as for me, in this first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And so here we have this first part. And to clarify this, as it says, and as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm. This is not Daniel speaking. This is the angel. If you recall last week, we, we talked a little bit about the spiritual warfare. Daniel had been praying and fasting for 21 days. And if you recall, Daniel, the, the angel that arrives to Daniel says, listen, the moment you started praying, God sent me. But on my way here, I got into the spiritual battle. It talks about the prince of Persia, this spiritual battle that we talked about with, with the angels and the demons and the spiritual warfare that, that, that our earthly eyes don't always see, but we often feel. And so this 
angel is, is, is telling Daniel that, you know, you know, in this first year of Darius the Mede, I, I was the one that was standing there and in, in, in fighting for Darius. And so, again, we see this picture of this, this, um, this spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes. And, and Darius is, is king of the, the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is the empire that conquered the Babylonian Empire. And if you recall, going back to Daniel chapter 2 and again in Daniel chapter 7, that, that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this man, this statue, and the head was made of gold. And, and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that that was a symbol of the Babylonian Empire, the strongest, the greatest empire the world will ever know. But it would only last for a short time. And it would be replaced. The Persian empires would come in and they would conquer the Babylonian Empire. And, and so here we have right at the beginning. And so as, as Darius, the, as the Persians are coming in and conquering, there's this spiritual warfare going on. These, these demons are trying to control or, or, or trying to influence the way in which Darius and the Persians will treat specifically the people of God, the nation of Israel. And remember, th- this prophecy is relative to, specifically about the nation of Israel. And so, so what this angel is saying is, that, okay, so Darius comes in power and there's this whole behind the scenes battle going on. But it was these angels that stood strong and we know through history, we know through, through reading Daniel even and, and Ezra that the Persians were much more compassionate on the children of Israel than the Babylonians were. In fact, Ezra chapter 1, 1 through 4, we, we see that there's a decree that's sent out that allows the Jews to go back to their home. And that's all done here through, through Darius the Mede. And so we have this. And, and on top of that, it talks about there in uh, the, the second verse about There'd be three more kings and then a fourth. And so you go in your history books, and, and again, on this, this half sheet, I included the names. We don't have time to go through all the history of these people. But what's so amazing is as you look up, as you Google, as you study these names, and you look at the timelines involved, you see how God nails this prophecy exactly the way it will occur. And so there were four more kings. And the fourth one would be the richest of all the Persian kings, his name was Xerxes. It's the same king if you read about, if you go and you read the book of Esther, it's the same king in Esther. Okay, and so Xerxes becomes the king. He becomes the most, the most wealthy of all these Persian kings, and he takes his wealth and he begins to build his army, as you, as you, you see there in that verse, that he'll, he'll um, become strong through his riches. And he'll stir up against the kingdom of Greece. And so he builds an army. Some commentators say that the army was as large as two and a half million men. He, he, he gathers this army together and he begins to attack and go after Greece. This occurs between, Jan, or between Esther chapter 1 and chapter 2. He wins a few battles but ultimately loses in his efforts. And, and the result of all these wars decimates Xerxes' army. He returns back home angry and bitter. And what happens is he stirs this angst in the Greeks. Okay, so let's go on to our next section there. Verses 3 through 4, and these are prophecies relative or concerning Greece. And so verse 3 says, And then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. 
And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, but for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. And so verse three says, then a mighty warrior shall arise. We mentioned this in Daniel chapter seven, when Daniel has these, this vision of these beasts. That second beast was this leopard with four heads and wings. Again, in Daniel chapter seven, eight, he has this other vision about this goat that conquers the world so fast, so rapidly that it doesn't even touch the ground. And so this, this mighty warrior is Alexander the Great. And history tells us that, that Alexander the Great would build this army, and it was nowhere near the size of, of, of Xerxes, of these millions, rather it was thousands. But it was so well-trained that they moved so quickly. And, and Alexander the Great, even to this day, is considered the, the wisest, the smartest military strategist to ever live. Uh, people in the military academies still study Alexander the Great. And so he goes and he conquers. And if you recall, as we talked about this, by the age of 29, Alexander the Great conquers most of the known world. I mean, in rapid fashion. He begins to cry himself to sleep because he's got nothing left to do. He, he falls into this drunken stupor, and by the age of 33, he dies. While he's still in great power, he dies. As quickly as he's able to conquer the world, he's done. His sons are way too young to take over for him. And in fact, they themselves are killed. And so his Greek empire is divided up into four sections, um, given to his four highest generals. And what's interesting, as, as it talks about there in that, those few verses, it talks about the four winds of heaven. But as we transition into verses 5 through 20, the rest of what we'll read today, it only focuses in on two of the four sections, the, the north and the south. And the reason behind that is, again, this vision is all being seen through the lens of Israel. And the northern kingdom the Seleucid Empire that we read about in history, and the, southern, the northern kingdom, which would be Syria, and the southern kingdom, Egypt, where Ptolemy and his ancestors would, would rule. And a little while later, we may show you a map, but in the midst of that was Israel. And so what we're going to try and do is, is identify some of the people that are mentioned here and then find some points of application. You know what's crazy is I think as we read this stuff, to me, a lot of this almost sounds like an ancient soap opera. So here we go. Uh, verse 5. Okay, verse 5 says, And then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be great authority. Um, and again, in, the, in your notes there, I wrote down that that, that particular kingdom there those kings were uh, Ptolemy I in Egypt in the southern region and then Seleucus I in the northern region. 
Seleucus was the stronger of the two, and, and he ruled this large empire, but, but he was able to form an alliance with Ptolemy. Let's go to verse 6. And after some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. And her attendants, and he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And so we have here this story that could probably be made out of a movie today. The southern region, the southern kingdom um, of Egypt is ruled now by Ptolemy II, the northern by Antiochus II. Um, Antiochus II is married to a woman named Laodice. And and he loves Laodice. They got a good thing going. But Ptolemy, at this time, the southern empire is much stronger. And Ptolemy um, is trying to create, manipulate this alliance with the northern empire. And so he goes to Antiochus II and says, listen, um, I want you to marry my daughter, Bernice. Antiochus II says, listen, I'm, and this is me paraphrasing, Okay. Uh, I'm already married. I dig my wife. No thanks. And then Ptolemy says, listen, oh, that's fine. But if you don't marry my wife, my daughter, then I'm going to kill you. And that changes the situation. And so um, Antiochus II um, moves his wife Laodice away. He marries Bernice. And, um, and there's this alliance Two years later, Ptolemy dies. And after his death, um, he decides, Antiochus II decides to bring his wife, the one that he loved, back, Laodice. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, hell hath no fury, like that of a scorned woman? That was Laodice, okay? So she comes back, and um, Antiochus II thinks, like, everything's going to be cool now, because I got you to come back but it doesn't work that way for her. So she poisons and kills Antiochus II. Then goes and kills Bernice. Then goes and kills the child that Antiochus II and Bernice had. You guys dig the whole soap opera going on here? This sounds crazy, doesn't it? It doesn't sound very kingly, but this is what happens. And it's amazing that here Daniel is getting this vision. He writes this out hundreds of years before it will occur. So verse 7, let's pick up. And from a branch from her roots, her roots being Bernice, one shall arise in his place, and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold and For some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. And then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. And so what happens here is you have Ptolemy III, who is the brother of Bernice. And he's a little upset what Laodice did to his sister. So he gets his forces together. He gets the army up. He's now ruling the southern portion of the kingdom. And he rides up and they attack and they have this battle going on up north and he comes out victorious there. 
And then let's get over to this last little section here. Verse 10 through 19. And his sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall rise, or shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again rise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. And in those years many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city and the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops for there shall be no strength to stand but he who comes against him shall do as he wills and none shall stand before him and he, sta- and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom and he shall bring terms of agreement and perform them and he shall give them the daughter of women, to destroy the kingdom. But it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence indeed. He shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his free face back towards the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. These 10 verses highlight the next kings of those land, Ptolemy IV in the southern region and Antiochus III in the northern region. Antiochus III, historians often call Antiochus the Great. And he will go, Antiochus the Great will go and he'll initially conquer Egypt once again. In 220, 220 B.C., he'll conquer it. In 217, um, the Egyptians rally up and they run the Syrians out of Egypt once again. We saw at the beginning of that passage. From that point, Antiochus the Great will go and he'll begin to get these people who will align with him. Philip V of Macedon will come in. And some of, even some of the Jews that are there in Israel will come up and join forces with Antiochus the Great. And he will go, and he will once again go, and he will conquer this area. And it's funny, as we saw earlier in this passage, he will use this idea of marriage to create some form of alliance. Antiochus III um, has a daughter that he wants to send down to Ptolemy IV, who has a son who's been identified as the next in line, Ptolemy V. And he, he wants to send his daughter, who happens to be the name of Cleopatra, the first. Now, this is not Cleopatra that we know with Mark Anthony. This is Cleopatra, the first great-grandmother. And she's sent down to, to become the wife of, of Ptolemy V. She has to wait a little bit because Ptolemy V is seven years old when she arrives. The plan is this, though. Antiochus the Great wants 
Cleopatra to go down there and become his spy. Okay? She's going to send information back to Antiochus the Great that he can use. But something occurs, something happens. In time, Cleopatra truly falls in love with Ptolemy V. And then she rejects her father. And we see that mentioned there in Scripture. This rejection, this breakaway causes Ptolemy to turn away from this idea of trying to capture, or not Ptolemy, Antiochus the Great from trying to capture and align with Ptolemy. He decides he once again wants to go and capture Greece. So he turns his attention back to Greece. On his way there, as he begins to go, um, we see that, um, let me see if I can find it again. We see that Rome itself shows up as he goes. Um, it says in verse 18, after he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. He in turn his insolence back upon him. And so this, this commander is the Roman Empire that we'll read more about in the next few chapters. What's interesting is the policy that the Romans had was if you went to war with them and you lost to them, the Romans would give you the bill. They would require you to pay the expenses. And so Antiochus the Great had gone and tried to conquer this land. They lose to the Romans and Antiochus the Great is given this great bill. He returns home. They are broke. Um, in that verse, then towards the end, we said that he will stumble and fall. History tells us that Antiochus the Great stumbled, fell off his horse, and died. That's history in a nutshell. Great. So what do we do with this? What, 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 why do we even talk about this? Well, one, again, our method is if it's in the Bible, I believe we need to talk about it. We need to see it. Um, for us, this is a history lesson. For Daniel, this was the future to me, this, this idea offers great excitement and hope because the God that I know, the God that I love, and the God that I serve, he's the one that directs history. He's the one that's always in control. Um, I, I think when we look at that first two verses there, when we saw that little battle going on um, behind the scenes of Darius, we understand that, um, that in the midst of all these kings and all these changes, we understand this, that God is the sovereign authority or author of all governing authority. What does that mean? That's fancy church talk, right? It means this, that God's in control. God's in control of all of these governing nations we seem to keep going back to some of these thoughts with where we're at today. The country that we live in, the world that we're a part of. And sometimes if you're like me, you can sit back and think, man, there is no, there's nothing good. Like nothing good can come out of this. Like God, if you really have this, I don't see where it's going. Like, God, if, if, if you're truly in control, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that we can live in a world that, and, and specifically in a country that, as I said last week, cares more about the death of a lion than death of innocent 
unborn children. It doesn't make sense to us, doesn't it? Like, you think like, okay, God, like, you're in control of authority. Like, nothing happens without you allowing it to happen, which means that the, 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 the president that we have, God allowed to be in place. And he's made several ungodly choices. But we have to understand this. Do you guys remember the beginning of that section? He, he talked about this spiritual warfare going on in the first year of Darius's reign, right? You guys remember a, a few chapters back, Daniel chapter six, we, we told a story, like it was an awesome story, a story that we like, most of us, if we went to church, grew up reading and hearing about, right? Daniel, the, the, the persons had just conquered the Babylonians. And Daniel had, had enjoyed some time under the, the, the leadership in the Babylonian Empire, and he had been exalted into some good positions. Cyrus comes in, Darius, they, they see this, and they understand the value of Daniel, so he allows, he's allowed to continue this influence. Well, as, as they're trying to unite this newfound empire, some of these guys get into the, the head of Darius and say, listen, Darius, for 30 days, you should make all the people just worship and bow to you. They, if they have any requests, anything, they should come to you. It will unify the people. To Darius, that sounds like a great idea. And so he makes this law. They, they stamp it in. And the result is if you do not pray to Darius, if you do not bring your request, if you do not worship the king, then you'll be thrown into a lion's den. Word reaches Daniel, this new law. The Bible tells us that Daniel went back to his home, opened his windows, turned to Jerusalem, and prayed like he always did. We see all throughout the life of Daniel, like he continued to turn his face and pray to God. Like that was a bad choice. Like Darius made a bad choice, didn't he? And, and once he found out about Daniel doing it, he and Daniel and Darius were tight. Like he was upset. The Bible tells us that once he found out, like the whole night before he had to, to, to send Daniel to the lions, and he and all of his lawyers were gathered up together trying to find an out clause. There was none. And so Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. But what did God do? Even though Darius made a stupid boneheaded decision, God sent angels to close the mouths of a lion. And what we today can't lose hope in is that if God can send angels to close the mouths of a lion in the Old Testament, he can do the same today. That he can make, he can allow kings and presidents and judges and whoever else to make stupid decisions. He can allow our bosses. He can allow our spouses. He can allow our children to make dumb decisions, but still protect. That's important, folks. The second thing quickly, verse four, we saw that verse four and five, we saw this, this quick snapshot of Alexander the Great. And it's interesting to me, we in history call him Alexander the Great, and we have all these history books and all this amount of time that we designate to him, but when we get to the scripture, he gets a few lines. I think the second thing we can see is apart from God, man's plans are futile. We take God out of it, our plans are futile. Alexander the Great had, had tried to conquer the whole world, and once he accomplished everything that he had planned to do, he found no satisfaction. He found no joy. He found no peace. He found no contentment. 
See, those were his plans. In that passage of scripture, it talks about um, as he was still rising, his nation, his empire was divided. See, our plans are futile. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many of the plans in the, man, in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. If you, you go in the New Testament, there's a, a pretty familiar story. Um, in Matthew, Matthew 16, um, Jesus is having this interaction with, with the disciples. He had just told the disciples that um, his time was, was near. Like he, he had planned... Um, the plan was that he was going to come, but he was going to die on the cross for our sins. Matthew 16, 21, picks up and says this. It was, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chiefs, priests and scribes, and be killed on the third day and be raised. Matthew 16, 22 says this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So I'd like to be a fly on that wall when Peter grabs Jesus to rebuke him and tell him that he's wrong, right? And so Peter's grabbing him. Peter's like, in his mind, and it wasn't just Peter. It was the mind of those disciples. Like, they had signed up. They were following Jesus. In their mind, they keep thinking that, that God's creating this kingdom, but they weren't thinking heavenly kingdom. They were thinking earthly kingdom. They, they, were, they were believing that Jesus was going to bring and set something up here on earth. And so they thought they were going to be part of this awesome thing. That, that Here's Peter going to be secretary of defense or whatever. And if Jesus is going to die and go, then that ruins all my plans. And Jesus' response to him is, get behind me, Satan. He follows up in verse 24, says, And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone should come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever, will lose, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Our plans, as good as they may be, if we don't include God, they'll be futile. And here's the last thing I want us to touch on quickly, and maybe the most important thing to me this week as I study this, is look at verse 8 again in Daniel chapter 11. He says this. This is when they're talking about being conquered. He says, And he shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. He goes in to Egypt, into their temples, and they had these trinkets, if you will, that were their gods, made of gold and silver and precious metals. Uh, scholars tell us that they probably had somewhere between 1,500 and 2,500 of these things. These gods, everything they hoped and trusted in. When the, I think it was Antiochus, or, or no, or Seleucus II marches in there and conquers it. They're able to steal the Egyptian gods. Let me ask you guys this question, or consider this. Anything 
you worship apart from God will fail. We saw there that whole nation was wrapped up in gold trinkets. This is where we get to step on some toes a little bit. And I, I'm, this is not me pointing fingers at anybody. This is me considering this myself. What is it in your life that you worship? The Bible uses the term idols. Um, as we think of idols, we think of those little trinkets. We think of statues and things that people would bow to and worship to. But we have idols in our own lives today, don't we? It may not be a little trinket. Can your God, can your object of worship be stolen or lost? What, what is it, maybe the better question is this, what is it that defines you? When you think of yourself, when you think what defines me, is the first thing in your mind, the first thought is, well, I'm the president of, I own this, I'm married to, I'm the mother or father of, I drive A, I live at, is that what defines you? We are, I know we're running late, but check with me once, last passage. Matthew 15, Matthew 15, verse three through eight. Turn back there for, with me, because I think this is so powerful. It says this, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but no feet or no feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. If you have a Bible and a pen, I would underline verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Whatever it is that we worship, whatever thing, whatever stuff, whatever status it is, whatever we worship, we ultimately become like it. How do we know what we worship? I mean, right now, right here in church, we can easily say, well, I worship Jesus. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Step back and think. Consider three things. Where does your time go? Where does your talent go? And where does your treasure go? You look at those three areas. What's grabbing a hold of your time? So we all have vocations, things we need to do, and, and those are um, gifts, even though some may be better than others, right? And God calls us to work, and we ought to work hard, and we can give God glory through our work. But does your job define you? problem is for a lot of people, that's what defines them. But what happens that day when you retire and you no longer have that to hold on to? What happens that day when you may lose your job? What about your talents? You know, the Bible tells us a couple things. One, we're born naturally with gifts, with abilities. God gives us. The Bible also tells us that when we accept Christ, we receive spiritual talents and gifts. God's given us these things. What are we doing with them? How are we using them? Is it just to accomplish our plans? Is it just to get ourselves, our families, our children, our friends, whatever further ahead? 
Or are we using those for God? And the third one is treasure. What are we using with our financial resources? Now listen, folks, if you've been to Redemption Hill for a while, you know that Chad's not want to get up here until you send your money here. So I don't care. God will provide for our church. He has in the first two years, and I know he will continue. Okay, I, I believe that fervently. That's why I can, I can stand up here before you fully saying, listen, if, if everyone chooses not to tithe today, fine. God will provide. And if he doesn't, he'll open doors elsewhere. I don't preach for a paycheck. But the reality is this. It's scriptural. The Bible tells us that we're to give back to the Lord 10%. You know what's amazing? Check this out. And I'm almost done. Daniel begins this, right? The whole reason he's held captive, the whole reason, going back to the very beginning of Daniel chapter 1, they're captured. You guys remember Daniel chapter 9, he's going through the book of Jeremiah, and he realizes, he sees it in Scripture, that the Bible tells them that that Israel would be captured for 70 years. Why? Because for 490 years, they rejected God's plan of a Sabbath. Sabbath year for their lands. What would happen was they would work six years in the fields. And that seventh year, they would take a rest. That sixth year, the Lord would give a double blessing. That seventh year was a way for them to show their faith and trust in God. Israel got greedy. And they thought, well, we can keep working. And we can keep producing. And we can keep making. And so for 490 years, they rejected God. And so God said, fine, here you go. Here's captivity. Learn the lesson. Trust me. Listen, folks, I can tell you from experience, tithing is not easy. Whether you have 10 cents in the bank or $10 million in the bank, it is not easy. But back to what we said, do you have more faith in your job or your God? Listen, this portion of Daniel, if we take nothing away, I hope we see that God rules in the affairs of men. The question is, are you allowing him to rule in your life? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. I thank you for all things you've done for us. God, I thank you for um, your scripture. And God, I, even these tough passages, even these, these things with, of history of names and stuff like that where where we can get lost and think, oh, I hate history. But God, what an amazing blessing it is to think and to know and to realize that this was all stuff, all stuff that you told Daniel hundreds of years before. God, this this shows us, this affirms your strength, your wisdom, your knowledge. It affirms that you are always in control in good times and bad times. Lord, this morning, I don't know if anything struck a chord with anybody, but I pray that something did. Maybe for some, they needed to be reminded that, that you are in control. That you are in control of, of, of our government. You're in control of our country. You're in control of the world. Maybe some like me as of late have just been wallowing in all the bad stuff going on. We begin to doubt things, but God, you are in control and you can send an angel to shut the mouths of a lion today like you did in Daniel's day. Maybe for some, God, it was just a reminder that my plans are futile without you. And maybe for others, God, it was just having them to 
to think about what they're truly worshiping. I'm not sure what it is, Lord, but I pray that you do a mighty work today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.